0: Episode 463 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets, although you may hear from them today. Joining me for the news roundup, a couple of new players, Kristen Flynn Goodwin, formerly General Manager and Associate General Counsel at Microsoft, now the founder of Advanced Cyber Strategies. Kristen, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Also new to the podcast, Michael Karnikoulas, who's the executive director at UCLA's Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. I'm a former UCLA Law graduate, so I'm always glad to have somebody from UCLA come on the program. Last but not least, a favorite on the program, Matthew Hyman, senior fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason. Matthew, it's great to have you back again.
2: Great to be here, Stuart. Always fun. And I'm
0: Stuart Baker, formerly with NS and DHS, the host and chief provocateur, or as some have said, the chief troll for today's program. Matthew, why don't we start with the latest Moral Panic produced, you know, more or less as a synthetic event by a Senator Wyden, who demanded a report and then demanded that it be about commercial data collection by the intelligence agencies, and then demanded that it be made public and then got the press, which of course was ideologically simpatico, to make a big deal out of it. So, Matthew, what is actually in the report?
2: This is a report that was issued by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The report was completed in January of 2022, and as you mentioned, Stuart, it was recently declassified. And the report talks about what sort of commercially available information is out there on U.S. persons, and it talks about how the intelligence agencies are thinking about the gathering of that information and creating standards and rules and guidelines for how it does and does not use that information. That's generally what the report talks about, talks about the need for these guidelines. And I read the report, I, you know, I wasn't exactly alarmed by it. And when I looked at the headlines from various news stories about it, it seemed to be very much of an alarmist bent.
0: Oh yeah, here's Wired. The US is openly stockpiling dirt on all its citizens.
2: Right. And I guess the only thing that would be worse is if the U.S. was secretly stockpiling dirt (laughs) on all of its citizens. The thing that strikes me about this is I can understand people wanting to be assured that the intelligence communities are using this information for national security purposes. Perfectly fair to have that expectation. I think what is lost in all this alarmism is this idea that if the information is commercially available you can bet your bottom dollar that all of our adversaries have bought it. And the idea that our intelligence communities wouldn't buy it seems goofy and would expose us to greater national security risk, you know, if they weren't buying it. And so if I was worried about information being available, I'm a lot more worried about the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, and others that intend to do us harm than I am about the U.S. intelligence community purchasing, which is exactly what they should be doing. They should be aware of what's out there, where the vulnerabilities for Americans are. That's part of their job. And so I sort of read this as a, you know, the sun rises in the East kind of story. I don't think it's particularly remarkable. It'd be more remarkable if the information was out there and the intelligence community wasn't buying it and wasn't understanding what's available.
0: I feel the same way. And I've tried to turn it into a more philosophical view of privacy. The things that we think are private are things where we can control who knows that it's happening or have some sense of control. And when you lose control of data that you thought you had control of, and that's clearly what's going on with a lot of this commercial data, for a while you feel violated every time you realize that somebody has access to it. But over time, you come to recognize that this is just data that is out there. It's never going to be subject to control again. And it's silly to think of it as private. And people who think of it as private start to look like nuts or folks who just don't know what's happening. It's like expressing shock that people can figure out what my address is. Everybody's address is figurable for a hundred different reasons and many of them good reasons. And so to legislate that this can't be used by a few people or like the intelligence community is just pushing them into a kind of 20th century ghetto that nobody else lives in. There was a time when the FBI couldn't use Google to look up Americans because that was investigating them and that was shocking. And then it's just after a while, after 9-11, people just said, oh, that's ridiculous. And I fear that trying to regulate commercial data access by government agencies is similarly foolish. It may also be foolish to try to regulate it in the hands of the private sector, but at least if you could guarantee that the private sector wasn't trading in it, you could reasonably say, well, then we can have restrictions on what the government does with it. But I think that's hopeless too.
2: I agree, and I I think there was a great line from the report that was quoted in one of these articles It said, the government would have never been permitted to compel billions of people to carry location tracking devices on their persons at all times, to log and track most of their social interactions, or to keep flawless records of all their reading habits. But obviously, we have devices in our pockets and purses that do exactly that, and that's the trade that we've been willingly making for, oh, say, 25 years of active use of the internet by the general populace. And so I think the other thing that frustrates me when I sort of hear these privacy advocates sort of bellowing about this great injustice is if you have a reasonable conversation with anyone and you say, do you think, name your company, Microsoft or Meta or Google or whatever has a lot of information about you or Apple... I think most people, if they take 12 seconds to think, will say, yes, of course they do, because I'm getting free email, I'm getting social networks, I'm getting whatever. And that's the trade we've all agreed to. And so I just, I feel like a lot of this is alarmism and it's, you know, and it's misplaced. It just seems misplaced.
3: Can I do some bellowing as a privacy advocate? Please do. We may bellow back. I mean, first of all, the note that the Iranians and the Chinese are buying this information anyway. I mean, I, I certainly agree that's true. But I think that it's also true that maybe the U.S. should hold itself to a higher standard than the Iranians and Chinese, particularly when it comes to potentially subsidizing these industries. And I also think that there are, for a lot of Americans, potentially Americans who come from groups that have historically had more antagonistic relations with the government or law enforcement, that there are harms to them and concerns to them that are probably worse than having the, uh, you know, Iranian or Chinese intelligence agencies having this information, which is much less relevant to them than American law enforcement. I'm not going to comment on any specific legislative proposal to tie the hands of the security or national security establishments because I haven't looked at those proposals in detail. But I also think that the idea that Americans have willingly entered into this trade and that they use, you know, surveillance devices and therefore they're completely okay with surveillance. I think the level of informed consent for this stuff is incredibly low. You get these long, you know, complex terms of service that you click through that nobody reads. I think there's a relatively low level of engagement on this stuff. And the idea that people have willingly signed up to the information society or people participate in the information society around them, and therefore they've abrogated any right to be concerned about the data that's collected or how it's utilized by their government. You know, I think that there are real concerns out there. And I, while I wouldn't necessarily endorse a particular legislative formula that's potentially out there, I don't think the story can be discounted either.
2: I just have two quick responses. Number one, having this information in the hands of the U.S. intelligence community is far different than being in the hands of the Chinese or the North Koreans. I don't think it's the same at all. The intelligence community is governed by rule of law, democracy, incredible oversight, none of which the Chinese, North Koreans, or Iranians have where their citizens enjoy. So I don't. I think that's a false equivalency. Secondly, I just don't buy the argument, Michael, that people in this day and age don't get that when they use the internet and they use their devices, they're giving personal information away. That's just how it works. Even if I don't read all the T's and C's and the click-throughs, I know that Apple, because I've got iPhones on my desk right now, has a tremendous amount of information about me. Every time I look up a map feature, every time I take their directions, every time I do anything. And so I just don't buy this notion that somehow the American citizens writ large don't get what's going on out there. I think it's clear as day. And I think you'd have to be living in a cave for the last 25 years if you thought otherwise.
3: But I think there's also a question of whether people can meaningfully opt out and whether there are sufficient legislative safeguards around the way this information is collected or if the trade-off really puts people in an impossible position. And, you know, just on the American versus Chinese thing, like, you know, I guess I, I would potentially take issue with the notion that there's just incredible oversight over these agencies. I guess it would depend on how we define incredible oversight. But the point that I was trying to make, well, obviously, like, I agree that, like, we're a rule of law country here and that that's not the case elsewhere. But if you're, for example, a Black Lives Matter organizer, I think that you would have cause to be far more concerned about what the US government is going to do with your data um, and US agencies than Chinese or North Korean agencies. That's just a factor of who you engage with and where the threats and concerns come from. So I don't think that it can be entirely discounted. And I don't think you can hand wave away the
0: concerns just because, you know, we live in a democracy. But the fact is, we do know what's going on. We do know that a lot of this is no longer private vis a vis commercial users. And the idea that commercial users can use this data to try to sell us stuff but the U.S. government can't use it to prevent crimes or to prevent foreign agents from infiltrating the United States, which was one of the uses that they mentioned, that they actually caught a whole bunch of Chinese nationals who had failed to disclose that they were actually engaged in military service when they came here. It's crazy to say, oh, well, sure, Google can sell me stuff, but I don't want the U.S. government having access to the same information because what they will do with it is less important. Boy, that can't be right. It does seem to me that... Saying that the government should not have access to it is just wrong. If it's available and we all know that our privacy is already compromised, it's, it's defying reality. It's trying to defy gravity to say, oh, well, I just don't want the government to be able to do things that any other human being in the United States can do.
1: It's also a matter of threat models. You can think about how do you protect the individual while still aggregating this data and looking at... How do you protect society, right? So in, in the 17 years that, that I was doing cybersecurity at Microsoft, I don't need content of individuals. What I need is macro, large data sets to be able to look at patterns. What are the risks to the society? So if there are these large data sets that the intelligence community can acquire, then they can understand how will China, how will Iran, how will North Korea, how will Russia exploit that data at a societal level against American citizens, extremely useful in order to think about not only national security defense for them, but also how they work with the private sector to improve defenses overall. That's great. You can also then think separately about what are the right parameters for protecting the use of that data at the individual level. So when you're thinking about how the data is used, think about your threat model. Threat model for protection of the nation and society versus the exploitation of the individual are not the same things. So I just I would caution you to be careful about the use cases, because when you blend them, you tend to make it impossible to use the data set when actually there are some really compelling needs here.
3: Yeah, I think that the aggregation and use case is a relevant point. I also think that there's a distinction there between using this data to target foreign nationals, right, like potential Chinese military agents in the country, versus using it about Americans. I think these are all salient. But, you know, I also would push back against the notion that because the private sector is doing this, that it's okay for the government to be doing this because I think a lot of folks would argue it's also not okay
0: for the private sector to be doing this and that there should be stronger rules. I think that's a perfectly plausible and much more responsible position. So yeah, all right, let's see if we can move on. Michael, I want to ask you, I'm really interested in quantum computing, if it ever happens. IBM has announced that it's actually did something with quantum computers that it was able to do better than classic computers can you tell us what it was that IBM actually did sure just
3: to back up for one moment, so quantum computing, for listeners that may not be as familiar, is a form of a machine that takes advantage of two principles of quantum mechanics, superposition, which is the ability of a single particle to be in separate states at the same time, and entanglement, which allows particles to share the same state, to carry out calculations that would be incredibly difficult or incredibly complex for a normal computer to handle. The hypothetical or, or proposed um, applications include the potential to crack public key cryptography, potential to use the technology to detect things that would be undetectable uh, using sort of traditional sensing mechanisms like looking through walls you know detecting incredibly trace amounts of a particular chemical signature in a big you know bustling train station as well as faster networking through a quantum internet the challenge has been leveraging these applications in order to perform cal- calculations that are actually useful right, or that eliminate the level of kind of background noise around how these calculations happen to create an accurate result.
0: So I've always, I've always understood that the problem is that these quantum states, they're very powerful and they last for microseconds. So they're constantly breaking down and then you're losing your, the accuracy of the information. And so error correction turns out to be a big chunk of the problem of making quantum computing work.
3: Right. It's something that's incredibly powerful, but also incredibly difficult to harness. So there's been a few kind of false dawns on this. IBM has now claimed for the first time that they were able to use a quantum computer to do something practical, right, which is to predict... Uh, something called an icing model, which simulates the behavior of 127 magnetic quantum-sized particles in a magnetic field. That's a problem that has a lot of real-world value, um, but is very complicated for classical computers to solve. This study has just been published, so I'm sure it's going to be picked over, and I'm not sure what the implications are yet for how quickly quantum computers are going to become usable. You know, IBM at least is claiming that this is a significant step forward toward usability. Of quantum computing.
0: Yeah, I got the impression that what they did is they said, well, we can get an answer in microseconds, so why don't we get a million answers? And they'll all start to correct each other's errors or at least mitigate them. So we'll get closer to the answer if we take all of the answers that we get. And they were able to check that using a classical computer on some of their calculations and decided that, in fact, the the answer they got from the quantum computer was better. We had a program, a whole program on quantum computing with a couple of guests who said You know, quantum computing probably is not that big a deal in things like cryptography, but it will be really valuable in recapitulating and exploring the quantum states in the physical world. And it sounds to me as though that's what they're doing here, that this is moving in the direction not so much of solving classical computer problems, but of trying to figure out what's happening in the quantum world by using quantum computers, which you know, kind of makes some sense. Yeah, certainly that makes sense. It's
3: interesting that's what you heard. I feel like everybody that you talk to about quantum gives you different answers. And you know, like a lot of advanced fields, it's tricky to cut through the hype and figure out where the technology is going, especially since a lot of these applications are, depending on who you talk to, you know, 10, 15, you know, maybe even 25 or 30 years away. So it's tricky to know, but there is certainly a lot of interest and a lot of optimism about this space. Um, I think there are national security implications, or at least that's what I've heard from folks in the quantum computing community, in that there are larger investments in this stuff being done elsewhere. And, that, you know, there's concerns about a quantum gap and the U.S. falling behind. Yep. Um, you know, I'm not specifically in, in a position to speak to that, but the power of the technology is certainly interesting, and it's an interesting area of discussion when it remains so hypothetical at
0: the moment. Yeah, in the last program that we did on this, I offered Baker's Law, which is that there is no profession better at scaring the national security establishment into giving it a lot of money than physics and I suspect that some of the quantum cryptography cryptanalysis stuff is that but we'll see okay let's go beat up the EU they uh, <laughs> they, they, they moved forward with their AI act which is kind of trying to ignore the fact that the entire foundation of the Act was cut out from under it by the latest chat GPT movement forward and they're patching desperately. Kristen, I know you actually read the AI Act, and there are some things that the EU just voted to put in there that are new and sound you know, even weirder than the usual stuff that they've put in there. What did the EU actually do in the last week or two?
1: Yeah, all 108 glorious pages of the AI <laughs> Act. So, So let's be clear. In the United States, when a bill becomes law, right, there's a version that passes the House and then another version that passes the Senate, then it goes to conference, then both sides agree, and then that's what goes to the president for signature, right? That's hard enough. In Europe, you have three groups that have to pass versions, right? So what we have now is the version from the European Parliament. That's what passed this week. Now, we still have to get the version from the European Council, and we have to get the version from the European Commission. Then they have this glorious thing called the trialogue, which is what we would call the conference conference, where, you know, they get into the cage, fight it all out, and then that is ultimately what becomes the European law, which, you know, it could be as, as quick as a year, could be as slow as, as two, but we'll see. The fact that, this version is out first, is, is really important to, to take a really hard look at. Europe's been worried about AI for some time. right? They convened a, a, an experts group back in 2018. This reflects a lot of that thinking. Uh, there's a, a lot of concern on protection of human rights. And so when you look at some of the, the foundational thoughts here, Do not exploit vulnerabilities in people to cause harm. And don't use artificial intelligence to evaluate humans over time, right? Like the sensitivity to the credit score of the Chinese is clear. Don't use subliminal messages. There's real tension in this draft about the use of real-time AI for biometric identification by law enforcement not quite as some headlines were screaming you know EU votes to ban AI it wasn't quite that that concrete but you know real tension about whether law enforcement should be able to use biometric information in real time and so you can see that that, that the EU is wrestling with what does this mean and you can see in the draft that generative AI is Still something that that Europe is getting its head around from a regulatory standpoint. However, there's this brilliant quote in the New York Times article from Adam Santorino. uh, Someone from the CCIA said, the EU is set to become a leader in regulating artificial intelligence. But whether it'll lead in AI on innovation still remains to be seen. And, and oh, that's the
0: takeaway here. <laughs> yes, you can be a leader in regulation. In fact, it's easier if you don't have an industry because then they aren't coming up with, you know, obnoxious problems with your regulation. You can just regulate in a vacuum and then the vacuum stays regulated. Yeah, well, it's-
1: <laughs> That's what's spectacular about this draft, right? You get past the opening sections, which are noble and responsible and thoughtful. And you get into the part, you know, back, where you really get into the bureaucracy of the thing and you start to see a lot of checks and processes that will make it very difficult to develop ai in the eu in a cost-effective and timely way unless there's some some real thought put into this in the next two iterations that come out of the european regulators for example there's a process to create a regulatory sandbox Um, this is Article 72 for those playing along at home, so that if you're developing AI, you will test your capabilities under supervision by a regulator during your development pre-marketing stages. They
0: they think that is their concession to the market because they're going to let you do stuff in the sandbox and see how it goes as long as they're watching it every moment. So if
1: you think product development with your attorneys has been fun, Ah, imagine ah, what this is going to be like. You know, where you get to bring regulators into that process too, right? So so that's going to be a major change for the world, having to bring regulators into that product development innovation stage. And so for startups, you know, go fast, break things like that will be really hard in this space for those AI products that meet this bar of being in this higher higher risk category of having to go through these checks. There's also a lot of logging requirements, data retention requirements, conformance assessments. Prior to being able to be sold in the EU, companies will have to go through a, a pretty rigorous process for that, which... You know, if FedRAMP in the U.S. is an example of how long it takes and how expensive it is to get something sold into market, you know, the Europeans will have to think long and hard about how do you do that in a timely, cost-effective way. Documentation is a big component of the act. And then fines of, you know, for all the GDPR fans, fines of 30 million euros or 6% of worldwide annual turnover whichever is higher for most serious offenses, right? So this is big money for those high-risk AI applications that are violating the terms of the Act.
0: So I was interested, there's a Stanford put out a report that uh, looked to me as though they were basically saying, we have taken many of the requirements, not all of them, but we took about 75% of the requirements in the EU law and applied them to several different AI models, Llama and OpenAI and the like. And there wasn't one of them that matched up as in compliance. And most of them were down around 50% compliance. So it's like they're writing a law that says everything you're doing is illegal.
1: <laughs> I actually don't have too much heartburn about that yet because, you know, as you're a- because with every good regulation in Europe, you have to have the implementing legislation, right? So we're not there yet. So I think that we don't have the details of how this will be implemented in order for companies to be able to, or for Stanford to have enough clarity to really be able to score that but yeah, that could be, they were they were pretty,
0: they, they were not as clear as they could have been about how they assigned well, a, a compliance score to each of the, the entities and each of the AI law requirements. But yeah, in fairness, like that's all we got right now. So
1: it's a reasonable approach from the Stanford guys. I think they did a great job. And it's a reminder of if this is going to be this hard today for the big guys, imagine what it's going to be like for the smaller companies who are trying to innovate and trying to move into the market, and they don't have those resources.
0: So I had one other thought. You said this has to go to the council. The council is where the member states and their bureaucracies who are not represented in Brussels get to speak. And the folks that are not represented in Brussels most egregiously are law enforcement and national security. So I would have thought that all of this stuff about saying law enforcement can't do live surveillance, uh, Clearview can't scrape public data, that all of that was headed for a fight with the national security arms of all of the governments that make up the council. Do you get a sense there's tension over that?
1: I feel like this is a topic for its own podcast. I don't understand why our European national security and law enforcement agencies aren't speaking up more about the tension with the balance between privacy and the need for a thoughtful approach to data and data access in order to be able to facilitate the types of hunting uh, that they need. And you can see a lot of these tensions playing out in the Europeans' reluctance to migrate to the cloud right? So I think AI is only going to continue to put pressure on that because you've got to be in the cloud in order to benefit from the use of that AI technology. So the law enforcement teams that want to be able to use this capability for what will be significant crimes or risks of threat to person and and loss of life will have to make really compelling cases. And because of the need to balance those interests against privacy, they're going to have to work pretty hard to convince those communities. You know, This regulation sets up yet another national competent authority, right? You've got a national competent authority for privacy. You've got one under the NIS directive for security. Now you're going to have one for AI. How they work together and fight all these things out will be fascinating. So I don't know how law enforcement, intel, and security keep their interests and equities front and center when this conversation is not yet focused around their interests. Cybersecurity is a pretty it's, – yeah. it's in the draft. It's not front and
0: center. My bet is that this tension is going to get very bad soon. And you're starting to see even governments like Germany and France saying, you know, these guys in Brussels or Luxembourg or wherever the Brussels institutions are holding forth – They just don't understand the world we live in, and we're just going to ignore what they say. It's a real breakdown in the moral force of Brussels as the people who prevented war in Europe for 70 years, and you can't question their judgment about what needs to be done. Uh, Maybe it's because we now have war in Europe. But the enthusiasm with which people have embraced Brussels solutions and the idea that you can get out of any problem you've created with a little bit more Europe. I just think it's starting to come apart, but we'll see. We
1: need a good oh. crisis, Stuart. That, that'll crystallize everybody's thinking. Wait till you see a nation state exploit AI in a major way. And then all of a sudden, shoot, we'll be right there.
0: Yep. I'm just not sure any of this works. You can say (laughs) you can't build this stuff in in Europe. You can't even sell this stuff in Europe. And that just means that if the stuff is compelling, folks in Europe will go someplace else to use it. You cannot prevent other countries from developing this by threatening to fine their industries out of business. So they may have come to the end of the GDPR model in in the AI Act. we'll see. Okay, let's go to the use of commercial data to run our lives by not the US government, but by Amazon. Uh, Michael, this story was too good to check, it looked like. The story as it was presented to us was a guy is falsely accused of having made a racist remark when he wasn't home and nobody was home to an Amazon driver, and his entire smart home is cut off without any notice, without an opportunity to defend himself. It turned out not to be quite that, but Amazon did not exactly apologize for suspending his account over a false allegation.
3: Yeah, well, I'll preface this by saying I obviously have no way of verifying this. It's based on a Medium post, and the customer denies having said anything. I have no comment on what actually happened one way or the other. Because again, like it's a medium post, who knows. It is an interesting thing to think about in the context of the level of power and integration of some of these companies. Now, on the one hand, if a company wants to deny service to a person, they typically have a lot of leeway to do that, right? If you go into a restaurant and you start abusing the waitstaff, they can throw you out. They can refuse you service. They can ban you forever if you want. That's their right as a private industry. If you do that in an IHOP and you get banned nationally, that's their right as a company. But, of course, you know, there there are two areas where that starts to get a little bit concerning. One is because of the level of power and integration of some of the services that these companies provide. So, you know, I can think of a situation where what if his Amazon devices had controlled the locks on his door? Yeah. And he'd been locked out of his account and now he can't leave his apartment. And I think that there is a message there about thinking carefully about diversification and the level of power that individual consumers give these companies. The other potential area where I think this becomes relevant is where a company is in what you might call a quasi-monopoly position. Right? So it's one thing if the restaurant wants to kick me out for saying something under my breath, or if I don't actually say anything under my breath, but they think I do, they can still kick me out because it's a private business. It's a different situation if this restaurant happens to be the only place in 200 miles that I can buy milk, right? Now there's suddenly a problem. And I'm not necessarily saying that we're there with Amazon, but I mean that that's, you know, as these tech companies start to sprawl out more and more, it does raise interesting questions about the level of responsibility that attaches to the
0: level of power that they have. So this raises an issue, I think, that is similar to an issue that the left is bound and determined to to dismiss, but which the right has occasionally uh, embraced about policing of speech by Silicon Valley, which is the notion that at some point The amount of control that a handful of companies or one company has over what we say turns that company into a public utility that needs to be governed by rules that require that they have a good reason for not serving people because they have such a dominant position. And that is a very standard common law view of the world, that there's a point at which you become a public utility. Sorry, buddy, but you're just going to have to start justifying all your Previously, private decisions not to serve people. I'll just slightly take issue with this
3: being a right-left thing. I'm not technically right or left because I'm Canadian, so I'm not even on your. Oh, you're just sector, no, you're just
0: totally left. Think, I'm sorry.
3: Right, <laughs> I'm just out in the way. Well, but hey, I was unless you come Alberta,
0: me. unless you come from Alberta, right. you're way on the left. <laughs> So
3: I imagine that most folks in this country would think of me as being on the left. I've been talking about this issue since 2014 and talking about the challenge of companies' power over global speech. Now, I don't see that through the view of some sort of sensible discrimination against conservatives or right-wing voices. There's never been any evidence put forward of that, and it's always been a bit of a canard. But I do think that the level of power and influence that these companies have is something that we should pay attention to. I don't necessarily see the solution as being a common carrier mandate. I don't like big government intrusion in the speech realm and that's what I would see that as being. But I do think it's valuable to have pressures around companies to adopt more responsible and thoughtful behavior around how they make these decisions. And that includes through things like accountability, through transparency, through due process. These are things that folks in civil society have been arguing for 10 years. And I think that the conversation has moved a lot in that time period, but there still is is a ways to go.
0: Yeah, I don't see how you can say, we we need to deal with the problem of private sector control of speech, but the government's not allowed to do anything. And that includes the courts. Who's going to do it? The tooth fairy? Well, I mean, We
3: have a constitution that places pretty clear rules around government intrusion in speech. I think that the First Amendment's a good thing, and I think it's good to keep the government out of that area. Let me stop you there. there Uh, Let me
0: just push on that because I am struck by the fact that when Western Union first came along, that's a classic public utility subject to government regulation, and they're not allowed to refuse to do business with people. But they used to say, I'm sorry, you're a reporter for a newspaper that has not been very nice to, to Western Union. And so you can't send your story to the newspapers that carry it. We're only gonna let friendly news services use our capabilities. And you know, that was one of the reasons that they ended up regulated. Today, people say, oh, First Amendment would be yelling about the First Amendment rights of Western Union, which we don't even think about. We don't think AT&T has First Amendment rights to, to kick racists off their service, and neither does Western Union. So the notion that you can't regulate here, particularly when you're talking about regulating to enable the speech of many people as a, against the alleged first amendment interests of some big corporation I, it strikes me as a, you know it's even pro first amendment to be having more voices rather than letting western union or amazon tell us what to think
3: yeah I'll say that First Amendment questions are tricky. I'll also say that it is worth noting out that none of these platforms are a monopoly the way that Western Union is. well. I'm not not that familiar with the Western Union example. Well, talk
0: talk to the guy who got locked out
3: of his house. It must have felt like a monopoly. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's one thing to say that you're locked into a system and it's another thing to say that you don't have alternatives. There are absolutely alternatives to Amazon when it comes to having a smart home. I know that because, you know, they're out there. Um, But in terms of of where is the responsibility going to come from, I mean, there are various different levers that you can exercise so th- there's avenues of public pressure there's avenues of advertising pressure there's avenues of shareholder pressure so there are you know other mechanisms there's employee pressure if a company is doing bad things, the employees, to a certain degree, are going to be pushing back on that and not going to want to work there. And it makes it more expensive to bring in junior staff. This is sort of, you know, the avenues of responsibility in this space do exist. It's not as effective as just saying, like, well, we'll just make a law. Um, but there are mechanisms to support responsibility. And we know that because there has been an enormous amount of progress... Twitter excluded, on most platforms with regard to the levels of transparency, accountability, and due process that we've seen in the content moderation space over the past 10 years, right? There's been a huge amount of advances there, driven by civil society pressure largely in the outset, as well as job and threats by government, right? So, so there are mechanisms to push that forward, even if it's not, even if it hasn't gone as far as some would like.
0: Yeah, maybe. What that says to me is if you can find a minority group that is or less of the country that all of the employees, that most of the employees in Silicon Valley and the management and the people who run advertising buys hold in contempt, you can suppress their views.
3: I mean, I'll say again, there's never been any evidence of any platform systemically moving against conservatives or Republicans. We have I seen, You know, I example, hear that, and I just, I don't,
0: I don't find that the least bit
3: okay, believable. Okay, show me the evidence. You're, you're saying you don't buy it, but I'm telling you, there's never been evidence
0: presented. Present me with the evidence. Sure. How about Google's search differences for candidates? How about Google's having killed GOP but not Democratic fundraising emails as spam? You're talking about... A spam.
3: So spam filters work on, I mean, you're, you know you know better than
0: this. Yeah, so uh, they, spam they, they, filters they, they.
3: are an automated system. The idea that they're using spam filters to f- deliberately filter out requests from some candidates or others is ridiculous. So, so um, and, what and, I can and, tell are, you, are you is there's and, been exactly one platform, there's been exactly one platform where the ownership is explicitly out there endorsing candidates, and it's Twitter. Elon Musk is out there saying, hey, everybody vote Republican. Hey, everybody vote for Ron DeSantis. These are the candidates that I like. He's taken an explicit political position, which Mark Zuckerberg has never done, which Google and YouTube have never done. No other platform has done anything remotely comparable to the level of partisan involvement as Twitter does, and it goes towards the right. And we've seen tons of disclosures from Facebook about them taking kid gloves towards prominent right-wing candidates because they don't want to appear
0: partisan. I completely agree with you that Twitter is no longer part of the general lefty consensus in Silicon Valley. And that's why they are being trashed relentlessly by everybody who thinks that their values should run America. And so they are suffering an advertising boycott and an effort to induce people to leave Twitter precisely because they don't like the views that Elon Musk holds and they want to assert the complete control of the national dialogue that they've enjoyed for the last 15 years since Silicon Valley took it over. But I don't think that proves your case. I think that's the exception that shows just how strong the determination not to allow a diversity of views into Silicon Valley discourse has become. But all right, so let me ask you this question. There's this flap over blue sky having not adopted a sufficiently aggressive view of what it's going to suppress by way of speech. Did you follow that? It's a death threat mixed with racism accusations. What's the fight about? Yeah, I think that,
3: you know, these content moderation challenges are always going to come up when you have a platform and they're never going to be easy to solve. So essentially, Blue Sky is meant to be a decentralized alternative to traditional centralized social media platforms. I say meant to be because I think they haven't actually federated it yet. But essentially, they created this alternative that's meant to run on protocols so more similar to the way that email works, where you can essentially host different standards on your own device as opposed to relying on the centralized server. And there has been controversy about their handling of threats, what's been described as hate speech, and the degree to which the platform is or isn't intervening in this. There is a core tension there where anytime you have the point of these decentralized platforms is it's meant to move away from giving anyone agency control over the speech that people can and can't see right that's why it's you know there's a lot of people that are interested in it from that perspective so as these things started to rise up you know The inevitable challenge was going to come with how you deal, the same way as it did with traditional platforms, is how you deal with speech that is unpopular, that people don't like to see, that creates perceptions of harm, that creates harm, which is not illegal. And so, you know, they're not going to be compelled to take down. You know, it's. I don't see how you solve that on a federated platform. I think that's kind of what federation is supposed to do, is it kind of prevents
0: you from solving that but it's a really interesting argument to see
3: unfold. It is. It's
0: sort of interesting to see everybody fleeing Twitter because they don't like the moderation standards and going someplace that is effectively going to be less moderated. And I think that that's true for Blue Sky if they actually do join the Fediverse properly. And many of the Twitter alternatives are part of Fediverse. And it's almost as though people are just determined to show how much they hate Elon, even though they are embracing technology and a style of moderation that inevitably is going to be less demanding than even Elon is.
1: But you know, Stuart, it's interesting. Sorry, because uh, I watched InfoSec Twitter was pretty up in arms about Mr. Musk and some of his policies and the way they were being enforced. And so you saw a mass exodus towards both Mastodon and Blue Sky. And now you're seeing a lot of these people coming back because the conversation stalled or just wasn't enough critical mass in these other spaces to to keep it moving. And so I think it's interesting, right, the values-based decisions that were driving people Away seem yeah. to also be ebbing when you're talking to yourself, and so it's an interesting, it's an interesting balance.
0: It's the power of you know network effects. I mean, we, which we all have known, and everybody gets to rediscover it now when somebody they disagree with is benefiting from network effects. But I think that's right. I think it's going to be hard to kill Twitter. Maybe the EU will kill it. They will find it to death for failing to regulate what the Europeans think of as as hate speech. Uh, They could do it, but I doubt that it's going to be done by people leaving. Okay, Matthew, there was a lot of 702 conversation. This is 702 of FISA. We talk about this fairly often. In the last month or last week, the administration has begun kind of throwing off another veil or two in their Dance of the Seven Veils of what they do with seven oh two data in the hopes of showing Congress that it's really valuable. And they came up with some pretty good examples.
2: They sure did. With seven oh two they said they were able to identify the colonial pipeline hacker. They were able to identify an Iranian ransomware attempt against a charity or a nonprofit. They were able to identified Chinese hackers and Chinese persecution of minority groups, sentinel rings. So, you know, they're going through the whole barrage of benefits that we get from 702 beyond just the traditional national security information that that program uh, is a big source of. And so the reason we go through this dance on a regular basis is, I think most listeners know, is because this program is subject to a sunset And so when that sunset comes up for expiration, which this one will at the end of the calendar year, there's got to be a renewal of it. And the typical extraction for renewal of the program is critics of the program say it's got to have another sunset. And so that's where we are. We had the first public hearing, as you noted last week, Stuart, where folks like the deputy director of the FBI and Matt Olson, a panelist many times on this podcast, who's the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, testified around, here are all the changes that the FBI and the DOJ have made to usage of 702 data to further uh, enhance compliance. And that, according to senators on both the right and left, have said, that's not enough. And it seems to be hinging on whether or not There should be sort of a supra Fourth Amendment requirement that the FBI has to comply with when it comes to getting a warrant for use of incidental collection of U.S. person data, which comes out of this program. And so how that works itself out, hard to tell. But I think that's really where the debate will hinge, because I think the administration will say, yes, enshrine most everything that we are already doing into law. We're happy to go along with that. I suspect there will be some dug in heels if it really comes to mandating that there be a warrant requirement for U.S. person searches, because that really does make the running of the program extremely difficult and extremely cumbersome and undermines the point of the program.
0: That's where I come out as well. I think it's going to be, it's a longstanding goal of left critics of the government and of the intelligence community and this program to get that. It makes almost no sense. there. There's no abuses that have been found that could have been solved by that, as far as I can see. There haven't been a lot of abuses. There have been a lot of mistakes, just an enormous number of mistakes, but none of them are tied back to abuses.
2: I I agree with that, Stuart. And the biggest, sort of the albatross around the neck of the administration is the FBI itself.
0: (laughs) Yes. And so,
2: uh, and I say that because the FBI, you know, there's some releases of court opinions in March that talked about some things the FBI did wrong. And I I think the FBI would be in a better position to argue for the need of this program if they could show scalps for the people that make mistakes or that misuse it, and they could go to Capitol Hill and say to Senator's, We fired this person and this person, and with this lawyer, we went to the state bar and asked to take away their license, but it never happens. It's like these mistakes happen, and no one ever gets fired, and at least from the outside, it doesn't look like there's any real consequence for mistakes, whether it's just negligence or worse, and I think that really hurts the argument that the administration is trying to run which i'm supportive of which is the renewal of 702
0: i think you're you're right that's the current mood in washington has been you know how come you never punished anybody and the administration has heard that the fbi now they'll, they're you know every time there's a hearing they, they they've come up with new reforms and their latest set of reforms is precisely that to say okay there will be consequences for making mistakes now. We're going to keep records. If you make enough mistakes, first we're going to retrain you and then we're going to take you off access to the database. And if you continue, we can discipline you for this. So they are moving toward showing that there will be consequences. Whether that's enough, I don't know, but they clearly got that message. Okay, let's talk about North Korea's hacker army because the Wall Street Journal had a Great article that said North Korea's hackers stole $3 billion worth of cryptocurrency last year, more than they had, three times more than they had ever gotten in any previous year. And the article suggested they were, they're really getting good at this, that they've got social engineering down, that they've got mechanisms for doing upstream supply chain attacks to get into another supply chain to get into their real target to steal stuff this is impressive stuff Kristen. should we give them the most improved hacker award for the decade
1: yeah i really think we should frankly you know what's interesting about north korea is that of all the big nation state actors you know russia china iran north korea 75 percent of north korean attack activity is, is typically aimed at individuals And so it's interesting to see them finally getting success against enterprises. The fact that they're going after cryptocurrency and banking is not news, right? Microsoft's been talking about this for about five years now. And so it's interesting to see that they're finally having success the means, Wall Street journal piece.
0: It means, it means the banks can't ignore this anymore. The cryptocurrency industry can't ignore this anymore. And I suspect sooner or later, China is not going to be able to ignore this anymore.
1: So I, I think that there's a, a bigger theme to think about, which is that because North Korea is under such sanction, it's important to keep in mind, like when I hired our first North Korea threat context analyst at Microsoft, I, I learned some of this I, I, What I'll share makes intuitive sense when you hear it, but I haven't really thought about it. North Korean agencies are responsible for being largely self-funding because there's no money. So particularly in the cyber realm, you see a lot of young employees of North Korean government agencies are being tasked with going out and figuring out how do you hack in order to then bring money into the regime. And that's the effect of sanctions. And so especially when you're looking at 75 percent of attacks impacting individuals, right, that's just the reality of the sanctions regime and how North Korea is dealing with it. So I, I just it's a, just an interesting context for how you think about this problem, because you don't tend to think about cause and effect of sanctions at that level because of the threat that North Korea plays having a real-world
0: business effect, but it is. So Let me ask you one yeah. question. Maybe you don't have a view on this. But a lot of these guys, they're very plugged in, obviously. They have access to a lot of money. And they're, in many cases, outside North Korea because you know, the Wi-Fi is better outside. And what I don't understand is why we can't turn them in mass quantities. Why can't we get them to start working for us?
1: I think the safe assumption is that most of them are in China and they have family back in North Korea. Okay. Right. And so there's a lot of moonlighting. I think that the wall street journal piece did a great job talking about that, that shadow workforce of thousands yep. of it workers, right? Microsoft has published on that too. And right, they have families at home. So they're sending money back both for their jobs back into their agencies and probably to their families too, So I I think that makes it harder. Um, Yeah, that
0: makes perfect sense. It might mean we could turn them, but we couldn't talk about it because if it became public, their family would become dead.
1: Right. So this is just going to keep evolving. And then when this tactic gets burned, like in a first Bangladeshi National Bank, right, 67 million, then a lot of that was clawed back. Right. So we'll see if any of this three billion in crypto can get clawed back out of these wallets. And then if the North Koreans are able to launder this into actual currency they can use, if they can't, then they're going to find another tactic to go evolve on. And, you know, you're going to continue to see this iterating. That's just how they work. But it's a, a really aggressive sort of low level, high noise. And we call it the Diet Coke uh, of the actors. Right. You know, like low calorie
0: high volume. So they'll persist. (laughs) All right. Last story that I wanted to cover. Microsoft got DDoSed by anonymous Sudan, which Microsoft has not said is the Russians, but everybody else has. And I would have thought Microsoft would prefer to have been successfully DDoSed by a sophisticated intelligence agency than by some hacktivist group in Sudan. Uh, How bad was the DDoS? It sounded Surprisingly bad. Like it took down a lot of people's cloud services.
1: So Microsoft said that the actor was Storm. 1359, right? And so they, they didn't go further than that. That storm is their, their appellation for uh, when it's a hacktivist group. If they don't have more specific data that allows them to associate it back with a nation state actor, then they don't have confidence in that they're not going to go further. And, and I know that that conservative approach has served them really well over time. It, was it a, a big attack? It was, it was big enough for the MSRC to have to confirm it publicly on their blog. But you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, Stuart, and 20 years ago, we were talking about DDoS attacks, and yep. we're still talking about them today. And the, the reality is that, you know, last year at Microsoft, we were dealing with over 1400 DDoS attacks a day, right? People forget that. And last year we saw a lot of them. You know, remember the Russian DDoSes against Ukraine before the invasions, and then the wave of DDoSes against Taiwan before Nancy Pelosi was there. And then all fall, right, we saw a bunch of DDoS attacks leading up to CISA and the FBI, maybe the NSA, I don't remember, and the multi-state ISAC. They issued guidance last October advising companies how to remember how to deal with this stuff, right? So, so DDoSs are a way of life. The fact that this storm 1359 had some success against Microsoft means that, you know, the company is going to have to step up its game and and I'm sure they already have. The MSRC post said layer seven DDoS attack. What that means in English was that the actors were going after applications so they were trying to disrupt people. They weren't trying to go after infrastructure or do anything really damaging. They were just trying to disrupt people. So is it one to be super afraid of? No, it's not like a critical infrastructure thing. It's just making life difficult. But DDoS is something to keep on the radar. So yeah, yeah, we should be paying attention to it.
0: Okay. Two or three quick hits that I wanted to bring up that just didn't fit in. The deputy in the cyber office in the White House, uh, there were two or three of them, but uh, the one who I always thought had the biggest impact on the cyber strategy was a guy named Rob Kanaki. He has now departed, as have Now several people in the office of the national cybersecurity Directorate. Sorry to see
1: him go. Wish him. Yeah,
0: he's 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 a mensch, smart, no BS, uh, and pretty uh, literate about all the policy issues here. So it is sorry, a bit sad to see him go. He was there about eighteen months, and he got the cyber report out. And you know that's probably not a bad time to leave. I know there are some conflicts with the national security advisor's office. So without a permanent head to that office, they're probably getting picked apart a little bit by NSA, by the National Security Advisor. So it's probably a good time to dust off your achievements and head out to do something else. Uh, But we will miss him. Also, two legal developments in antitrust that are just worth watching, and we'll come back and cover them. Microsoft's attempt to buy Activision Blizzard has been temporarily blocked because the FTC asked for a temporary restraining order while they briefed their preliminary injunction to a court in the US and the court said yes I'll grant you a TRO I don't think we can say that there's much of a signal in that in whether the uh, the preliminary injunction which would be a big deal if granted whether it will be granted but means Microsoft is held up for at least a couple of months and then probably the biggest potential action the EU is now talking about breaking up Google's ad business and our making a, a structural argument that Google is preferring its own business because it runs an ad exchange, more or less a like the New York Stock Exchange. And it also has a big say in who the buyers are and who gets to bid in the stock exchange and who the sellers are. So they are major infrastructure providers for sellers, buyers, and for what's supposed to be a neutral exchange. It sounds like a conflict, and I think it probably is. And the EU could decide to say, we're not going to let Google provide all of those capabilities at once. That would be an enormous deal for Google. It would be desperately impactful on their business so we're we're coming up on what could be a really big set of uh, antitrust battles. But hasn't happened yet because the EU likes to signal, as Kristen said, for potentially years before it actually comes down and and does something. Uh, But they're signaling pretty hard that they think Google is going to have to be restructured. That'll be a big deal. Okay, Kristen, Michael, Matthew, thanks for joining us. This was great to have you uh, for the audience. We're still looking for somebody to replace Mark Chernozik, who insists on putting embarrassing snippets from my conversation at the end of the podcast after the music. And so if you're interested in doing that, well, not doing that, but doing the sound engineering, send a message to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. We are looking for an intern. We are paying be great to have you and if you've got comments send them to the same address or leave us a review we're always glad to get good reviews or bad reviews if they're entertaining this has been episode 463 of the cyber law podcast say oh first amendment